Our reading today is James 4, 13 through 5, 6. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is God's word. Now let's stand for the benediction. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're, we're going to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it. I mean, seriously, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's almost as if James read Stephen King as a kid growing up, right? Like, like what in the world is this? My mentor, Steve Brown, uh, taught me very uh, early on in my, uh, in my understanding of what a preacher is to do. He said, uh, if you have to preach a hard text, do it quickly and then let people out to go eat. And so that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to rush through this and get us out here so we can go eat. Uh, but if I'm honest, my initial reaction when I read the first part of this text was one a little bit of utter delight. Let me read you again those first two verses. This is chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go on to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Finally, James is addressing a sin that I don't struggle with, a sin of strategic planning. I have five beautiful children because I don't struggle with strategic planning at all. But upon further examination and prayer of this text, I realize that's not what James is talking about. He's not saying like it's a sin to be a strategic planner. In fact, in the Proverbs, which James bases a lot of his teaching on what is laid out in the Proverbs, it says to not plan is to be a fool. And the word for fool uh, in the Bible, like we say the word fool and it's kind of in like a, a banal kind of way. Like it doesn't really mean much. But in the Bible, when the word fool is used, it is the most intense condemnation. Foolishness in the Bible is culpable blindness to reality which often leads to destructive and deadly choices. Whenever someone's called a fool in the Bible, they're being accused of culpable blindness to reality and often making destructive and deadly choices. 
So just when I think I'm going to, you know, ex escape James' discerning eye and I'm going to get to avoid the self-loathing that follows, I'm wrong, right? If I, were to, if I were to write a book on the book of James, it would only be two words long. I'm wrong. Because that's how I felt this entire study. But I jest with James uh, because, uh, because I love him and because this is my last sermon in this series. And so I am done after this. But as I was thinking about this being my last sermon in James, uh, in all seriousness, I have been blown away by, by what God has shown me and, and the amount of grace that is packed into this seemingly very practical and very hard letter. And so I might read it again sometime. Um, but the passage today is a rough one. It's harsh and it's meant to be harsh. There's not supposed to be a silver lining in this passage. In fact, both verse 13 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5 begin with the same phrase, now listen. Now this is an ancient Semitic way of giving a serious rebuke. So James is saying like, I'm about to say stuff to you that you're not going to like and that isn't going to be easy to hear. It's kind of like, like when your grandparent says like, now you see here, you know, like you know what's going to, I don't know why a grandparent sounds like that, but, but, uh, but you know what's going to follow it is not going to be pleasant. So what is it that James is, is wanting us to pay attention to? What is it that he's wanting us to take seriously? Well, last week we, we looked at what it means to be a Christ-centered community. And we saw that a community that's Christ-centered is a community that's completely built by grace. And really, James is continuing to paint this picture. But here he's really showing us some of the other ways in which we block that from happening. Some of the ways that, that we keep us from being a community of grace. There are two problems James addresses here. And it's not about planning, but it's about our arrogance and how we spend our money. So yeah, I know, this isn't gonna be fun. Again, I will make it quick. When James talks about the planning and what you're gonna do tomorrow and, and thinking ahead, the reason it's not about planning is because of verse 16, where he says, it is you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. It's not the planning that is sin. It's not the planning that blocks us from building a community of grace. It's the arrogance behind the planning. It's not the plan, it's the boast. Now, in ancient times, a boast was a ritual of warfare. And you see this demonstrated in movies like 300 or Braveheart or The, the, the Fate of the Furious. Like, there's always this moment where the leader gets up and, and, and what does he do? He boasts. He, he sets a great charge before the men. He says something like, tomorrow we will feast inside those walls. Tomorrow those women will be our wives. Tomorrow you can get a selfie on the iron throne. You know, like whatever. And then charge. And they do it, right? To me, that's crazy. Because in reality, most of them die. And they have to know that going into the battle. I mean, it's just basic math. If, if you are outnumbered one to a hundred you definitely are not going to make it for that selfie. So how do you get a bunch of men march full-heartedly into sudden death? How do, you, how do you get them excited about that? How do you get people to have the confidence to face their foe? The answer is in a boast. In ancient times, you made a boast 
And that got people riled up. That got them the confidence they needed to face the enemy. See, James understands that this is a spiritual category. There's a very famous passage in, in the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 9, that says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Not let the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God forbids people to boast in their riches or in their might or in their community. Why? Because our boast is what gives us the confidence to face life. And we all tend to boast in something besides him. We find something and say, if I have that, or if I can do this, then I can face what's in front of me. So for some, maybe it's alcohol, a little liquid courage. Maybe it's a relationship, or maybe it's our job, or our looks, or our new healthy lifestyle. Our boast is where we find our deepest source of personal confidence. So where do you find yours? Where do you look to for your confidence? Is it the Lord? Probably not. At least, at least that's not the case for me most of the time. Most of the time I'm looking for other things. And James says that's a problem. Boasting in anything other than then the Lord keeps us from becoming the community of grace that he designed us to be. And James is talking about a particular form of boasting. Some of us put our confidence in our planning. We, we do our work, we do our due diligence, we research, we strategize, because in doing that, we think we'll find peace. We boast in our planning as the peace to our future. And maybe we wouldn't say that outright, but practically... Those of us who plan a lot, we work really hard. We try to think about every contingency. We try to figure it all out. We try to think every situation that could happen. And we think by doing that, we can somehow control our future. See, the people to whom James was writing have struggled in very similar ways as you and I, even though culturally we're very different. There has never been a culture in the history of the world in which this particular form of boasting or arrogance was more um, prevalent than ours. Last week I said we come out of the womb thinking that we can be anything we want to be. If we just set our mind to it, we can chart our own destiny. In Malcolm Gladwell's best-selling book, Outliers, he basically says that your success is not under your control. The whole point of the book is, you know, he says, yes, hard work is important and aptitude is important, uh, but it's not nearly as important as you think it is. He says, along with your hard work and, and your aptitude, your upbringing and your culture plays a big part of your success. He says there have to be circumstances and, and opportunities and, and certain things have to line up in order for you to be a success. And if those, all those things don't happen, you're not going to be a success, no matter how hard you try. So if I were to write a book about the book Outliers, it would be one sentence, which says, your success or your failure is not dependent on you. And the Bible takes it further. 
What James says is if you believe, as most Americans do, that the future is whatever you make of it, you are a fool. And this is not a banal insult. It's a condemning fact. Verse 14, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James is saying the biblical truth, the biblical fact is if you think you're running the show, you're out of touch with reality. And that means you're going to make all kinds of destructively and deadly choices in your life. Our sense of control is just an illusion. I mean, didn't we learn that in the first Jurassic Park movie, right? Like it is, it's all an illusion. We cannot control nature. But it's more than just that. What James is getting at is a more insidious illusion that we believe. And that is that we know enough about the future to do the planning. One of my all-time favorite Tim Keller quotes is this. If we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what God gives. If we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what God gives. See, this idea that, that we know or we think we can know enough about the future to make the wisest choices really, in fact, creates anxiety in us. I mean, there's a sort of uh, overconfidence uh, that can be created by this, this arrogance. That's the obvious one. But this same kind of boasting or arrogance also creates an underconfidence. It's worry. Worry is saying, I know how my life ought to go. And I, and I know exactly how it needs to go. And in this moment, I'm worried it's not going there. That's what worry is. Worry assumes it knows best. As I've mentioned before, I fell in love with my wife uh, when, when we were in fifth grade. And uh, I went into my, Mrs. Wilgus's fifth grade class and I saw this girl with this amazing curly hair. And uh, that day I went home and told my mom, Mom, I met the girl I'm going to marry. And, uh, and for many years, uh, she would not have anything to do with me romantically. But when I finally uh, got her to agree to date me, I lived with constant worry. And anxiety. Like I would wake up every day and wonder, oh man, is this the day that she's going to break up with me? Why was I so worried? Why was I so anxious? Well, maybe because she was slumming and I thought she would realize that at some point <laughs> and be tired of it. But, but I think it was, more, it was more because I thought I knew she was the right one. I was confident that she was the right one. But what if I had just known James for a little bit more? What if I knew it enough to say, well, I don't know, but God knows. And I'm going to keep pursuing her, surrendering to him. Some of you might be dating someone right now, and maybe you are confident that that person is the one. What would it look like to say, I don't, I don't know, but God knows and I'm going to keep pursuing him or her surrendering to God. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. If we only knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what God gives. I was listening to a, an American psychiatrist on the radio the other day, and he was talking about how unwise we are, Americans that is, uh, when it comes to understanding mental health problems in other countries. And um, 
he says we, we have a tendency as Americans to think that everyone should be and is like us. And, uh, and he used the example of, uh, of when a natural disaster hits our response uh, when it happens in another part of the world. And, and he used an example of the tsunami that happened in the Indian Ocean a few years ago. And, and you know, thousands of people were killed. Lives were ruined. And he said many Americans poured into that region. Um, and many of them were mental health care providers who said, we're going to come help you with your trauma. We know you've been traumatized and we're going to help you with that. Now he said the people in that region needed sympathy. I mean, they had lost a lot. They had lost everything in some cases. They needed people to grieve with them. They needed people to weep with them. But he said where Americans missed it was they didn't understand how well people from other cultures deal with suffering. He said, almost everyone else in the world believes that our lives are basically dependent on forces outside of ourselves, that life is not controllable, that bad things happen to good people, and they have reconciled to that. But Americans, we feel like everything should be right. And if it's not right, somebody's screwing it up. And maybe it's, maybe it's you, maybe it's me, maybe it's our coworker, maybe it's our spouse, Maybe we just need to sue someone, make someone else pay. He said, Americans are the people in the world who are most traumatized by suffering. What was he doing? He was calling us fools. He was saying we have a culpable blindness to reality, which leads us to make choices that are both destructive and deadly. That's what James is saying. How's everyone holding up? Still with me? All right, we're, we're going we're gonna to wrap this up very quickly, okay? Uh, what, what's, what's most intriguing to me about this passage is that James does not immediately give us what will make this better. What does he do instead? He tells us how it gets worse. He goes, all right, that's bad. Now listen. He repeats that phrase. All right, now listen. I just gave you bad news. Now get ready for worse news. And so what is the relationship between chapter 4, verses 13 and 17, and chapter 5, verses 1 and 6? It looks like he's talking about two totally different subjects, but they both begin with that phrase, now listen, so they are intentionally linked. What's he trying to say to us? I think he's telling us that if we develop an attitude of boasting, of arrogance, of this sense of control, if we develop an attitude that's being described in verses 13 to 17, it will lead us to become like people who are depicted in, in, in chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. That's where we're headed. If we don't surrender control, if we hold on to our boasting and our arrogance and the confidence we put in things other than him, it will lead us to becoming people that he's describing in chapter 5. If you mainly believe today that the reason you are where you are is because of forces beyond your control, divine help, the gift of God, grace, then what you have, your assets, you will not treat as fully yours. You can't. Because you know to a great degree, it's a gift. It's all about grace. People who really understand that their lives are not the result of their own hard work or pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, but the result of the grace of God are the people who are most radically generous. They're the people who live at a lifestyle that's below the level they could live at. Why? Because they want to give. They want to keep giving. 
They want to give greater and greater percentages of what they have away. They disadvantage themselves for the sake of others. We talked about that last week, that, that righteousness, righteousness in the Bible can mean our relationship between us and God, what puts us right in relationship with God, which is only through what Jesus did on the cross. But the righteousness in the Bible that talks about our relationship to, to one another says that the righteousness that you and I are called to is one of disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of others. And so James here is showing us the opposite type of person. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now I skipped verse 4, but there is a, there's a whole sermon in verse 4 about business practices. There, there's, a, there's a wonderful sermon in there about uh, not being people whose bottom line is profit only. Now, it's not teaching that profit is bad. Profit is good. In fact, profit is necessary for business. But if you own a business, profit should not be the ultimate bottom line. If you are a Christian, your bottom line should be your people. But since not all of us own businesses here, we're going to just focus on that self-indulgent part. But don't skip over what verse 4 is saying. Feeling in control of your life dictates how you spend your money. If you feel like you've earned it, if you feel like it's your hard work, if you feel like you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, then how you spend your money generally is going to be selfishly. Do you spend more on yourself than others? How much do you spend on clothes or, uh, or vacations or toys or fidget spinners or whatever? James says rather harshly to those of us who spend more on ourselves than others, verse 3. The reason I didn't want to do this sermon. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Now, obviously, that's metaphorical. That isn't going to actually happen. That's why the Bible can't always be taken literally. But, but he is saying something very significant. He's making a distinction between wealth and the arrogance of wealth. Now, money can be used for good. And in fact, it, 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 it can do a lot of good. And so many of you here at Summit ha have sacrificially used your money for good. But what, but what James is warning us against is placing our confidence in our, in our money and our ability to make money. Because when success comes and we've worked really hard for it, if our confidence has not been in the Lord, but in our ability to do it, that's when it begins to eat away at us spiritually. It turns us into a fool. The movie Wolf of Wall Street, I can't recommend the movie because of what's depicted in the movie, but the fact that I can't recommend the movie because of that proves this point, right? 1 Timothy 6.10, for the root of all evil, or money is the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So now what do we do? Do we just give all our money away? Maybe. But that's not a first step. Remember, it's, it, the, 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 the how we respond to money has a step before it. And that's arrogance. That's where we're placing our confidence. So our first response shouldn't be, okay, I just start, need to start giving more money. I need to start being less selfish with my money. No, first we've got to go back and say, all right, where have I placed my confidence? Chapter 5, verse 6 says this. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. What was James doing there? Why did he end this very harsh 
you know, flow of sentences with that, with that verse. What's that about? We have, a, we have an intern right now who, uh, who's a Messianic Jew, uh, who, who just means she was born Jewish, and, and she came to, to recognize Jesus as Messiah. And uh, when asked what, then we asked the interns, like, what they would love for Summit to do more. And she said, I would love for Summit to incorporate more of the Old Testament and more of, of the celebrations of the Jewish people and, and how that points to Christ. And so I was thinking about this week, and as I was sitting in that verse 6, I started thinking about the fact that James was a Jewish man, and we know that James was, was writing primarily to Jewish Christians. He wasn't writing like Paul was to Gentiles. He was writing to Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians would have celebrated Yom Kippur, which is also known as the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur was the, was the reminder to the Israelites that even if they've been trying really hard to live a really good life, even if they have sacrificed for God, even if they've tried to obey all the law and the Ten Commandments, every year on this, on this one day, this Day of Atonement, they look back and they realize it wasn't enough. They had st- still failed. And Yom Kippur was God's way of saying to them, there's no way any of you can be in relationship with me based on your ability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, your ability to work hard. Like Kaylee said a couple weeks ago, there's no way for you to be good enough to be good enough for me. But you can be in relationship with me through atonement, through forgiveness and grace. So on the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest could enter into the holy of holies of the temple. And at that point, he could make a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. An innocent one could be slain for the sake of others. Jesus one time said to his friends on judgment day, I will look at some and say, depart from me, I never knew you. And I'll say, for when I was hungry, you gave me nothing. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. And when I was in prison, you did not look after me. I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So you and I could show up on judgment day and say, when do we see you naked, Jesus? And he would say, they cast lots for my garments. When were you thirsty and we didn't give you something to drink? On the cross, I cried out, I thirst. When were you in prison? On the cross, I stood as a man condemned, even though I deserved acceptance. I was condemned so that you indeed could be accepted. So if we find... That, that our spending, that's kind of the end result. That's the end picture. If our spending is more on us, the first step isn't to spend less on us, but it's to go back and see where is our confidence? Where are we arrogant? Where are we boasting? And then take a step back and see that our boasting has to be in what Christ did. When we see Jesus Christ becoming poor for us, when we see Jesus Christ becoming powerless for us and marginalized for us, even though he deserved all the glory and all the acceptance, when we see Jesus enduring injustice for our sakes, then we begin to move into a community of people who aren't arrogant. And when we boast, we boast in Christ. We become people who begin to give generously because we know it's not ours. We become people who can't help but declare to the world 
that it's all about grace. Let's pray. Father God, um, I thank you that I'm done preaching James, and I thank you for what James has taught me and how it stretched me and how I have had to wrestle with my sin in ways that were uncomfortable. But Father, I pray that all that wrestling, I would find rest in the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is. That I would look at Jesus and I, and I would see my sin begin to fade away. Father, we want to be a community of grace. We want to be a community that isn't arrogant, that doesn't place our confidence in things that will let us down or things that will cause us to make choices that hurt others. We want to be people who give generously. But we don't just want to do it as a checklist. We want to do it as a response. And so, Father, show us each day and every day more and more of the truth of what Jesus has done for us. That he was indeed the innocent one who was slain for our sake. And we pray all of this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.